Here we are, together again. Another podcast with your host, Joe Roeder, from the Reds Fly Shop. Thanks so much for listening. I'm trying to do these every two weeks and keep them, as I mentioned before, short, to the point, and tactical in nature, so that you, at the end of this podcast, have improved ability to go catch fish or have a great time fishing. So, first off, thanks for listening, Uh, and before I get to the meat and potatoes of this podcast that's all about fly rods, I'm hoping to teach you some stuff you don't know. We sell more fly, I swear we sell more fly rods than anybody in the country except Amazon, Uh, and that includes Bass Pro or Cabela's or whatever. Uh, It's winter time right now, and we sell a lot of fly rods in the winter, and it seems like whether customers are live chatting us, calling us, emailing, or stopping into the shop, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about fly rods because when you buy one, you're marrying it. So it, it should be really considered kind of a lifetime investment. So uh, we'll get into it today. I'm hoping to teach you some stuff. Uh, but first, follow us uh, on this podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Red's Fly Shop. Facebook, of course, uh, it's a very useful tool for us to stay up to date real time, uh, and then follow our blog and shop with us. Uh, we have everything, um, especially our flies. We have put a ton of work into our flies, having the best flies and categorizing them correctly, and check out uh, our deadly dozens uh, on our online store. Uh, that's where we pick out flies on your behalf. You let us know where you're going, when, what you're doing. We'll choose the flies, and these are the best flies for the job, not just some seconds we got hanging around that we're bundling up, but this is us choosing flies so that you have success. And if you have success, you'll come back, buy from us again, and fish with us some more. So in getting into the podcast, I did a video several years ago uh, on how to buy a fly rod, and, and frankly, it was a really poor video quality. It was just in the shop. It was kind of an impromptu thing. We'd had a couple of calls, and we said, ah, let's do a video on how to choose fire up. It had like a bazillion, or still got like a bazillion views. It must have been like seven or eight years ago. So I know this is a relevant topic uh, in just choosing fly rods and, and maybe how you can make your fishing better by getting another rod and not getting the wrong rod. So I kind of wrote down some random notes before I started this thing. And I'm going to kind of start at the beginning with just some really rudimentary knowledge. And uh, so that way we don't miss anything as we go on. But fly rods are generally, uh, for the most part, we describe them in a weight, uh, which is like an arbitrary number. could be a three weight, five weight, six weight, eight weight, ten weight. Uh, Smaller is smaller, uh, all the way down to like a triple lot or a zero weight, uh, all the way up to uh, a 14 or 16 weight. which on the extreme end, that would be for like marlin, tuna, mako shark, you know, super big stuff uh, out in the deep blue water with, you know, zero weight being on the extreme small end. That's like a tiny creek for brook trout or small mountain trout, uh, that sort of thing. Kind of the, in as, as anglers, be careful not to fall into just the norm. You know, there's this prescription of a five weight for, just kind of your go everything, uh, do everything kind of fly rod. Uh, I described as like the F-150. Chevy owners hold all your jokes uh, till after the podcast. I welcome them in the comments though. Uh, but the five is kind of like the F-150. It'll do a little bit of everything, but 
if you're driving around town in traffic and parking and parking garages, an F-150 is a pain in the neck, right? Uh, but it's a good all-around, but a lot of people just start with a five-weight to cover most bases. And if I was fishing big western streams the rest of my life, a five-weight would be a great choice. Uh, but as I go through the podcast, don't fall into the trap that everybody's first fly rod or their go-to fly rod should always be a five-weight. Uh, so... With that being said, the the numbers are arbitrary, uh, and then we have corresponding line weights. If you buy a six weight rod, a common theorem is you know you buy a six weight line for it, and so on and so forth. And I'll get into line selection just a little bit in the podcast. Well, maybe that's a probably a separate podcast. But the numbers are arbitrary. Small is small, big is big. Uh, you know, fly rods come in a two major configurations. Uh, we'll talk primarily about traditional fly rods, which are single handed. And I'll touch on two-handed rods just a little bit. But single-handed rods are uh, a classic fly rod. Uh, Single-handed fly rods are divided into weights. And then they're divided into lengths. And I'll talk a little bit about the pros and cons of long rods uh, versus short rods. Uh, The most common material for rods to be built with. And I'm just going to roll graphite. Uh, into just one general category. There's lots of different, you know, recipes or qualities of graphite. Uh, I'm just going to say that there's really good graphite that's light and strong, uh, that's bound together with different types of resins. Uh, and then there is, there's cheap graphite and there's good graphite. And we'll just kind of leave it at that. There's a newer material that people are using called graphene uh, that's found in some rod models. And there's fiberglass, uh, which is kind of a throwback uh, type material, but there is some modern fly rods uh, built with a higher modulus fiberglass that perform pretty well, but they still flex a lot, making them fun to cast and, and frankly, very durable. Uh, and there's a couple of different applications for fiberglass, but it's still in play a little bit. Uh, and, you know, both the Echo Fly Rod Company and the Reddington fly rod company make a glass rod and then there's a few other ones like epic um, that are more of like a premium level fiberglass but fiberglass is durable uh, that's one of the upsides of it and then uh, there's bamboo for those that uh, that like classic cars and then also like classic fly rods bamboo is cool um, it's pretty fun to fish um, you know none of us signed up for fly fishing just so that we could catch the most fish or more fish um, there's an element of kind of art history, style, and enjoyment that goes into it. So, you know, bamboo still has its place for anglers that have been kind of, kind of been there, uh, and done that. So we'll talk about these different things. Um, and I'll touch on those different things as we go along here and I'll try to stay fairly organized to just make sure and teach you something. So in the beginning, you know, most anglers, you know, should start out, um, maybe you're a beginner or you're helping somebody, uh, you'd be a mentor towards somebody. Uh, as people start out, it's, it's silly to, to think, well, you should just, you, you have to have, you know, a, a high end or a fancy rod in order to be successful. That's so far from the truth. Most of our gear outfishes us. So I'll be the first to admit, you know, even me being an extremely advanced and expert caster, my gear will outperform me most of the time. So you have to fish and cast quite a bit and be pretty dedicated to it to outfish entry-level gear um, or outcast entry-level gear, with the exception of a fly line. A fly line is kind of like 
I'm a little bit of a snob when it comes to that. I would rather have a really, really good fly line, a less expensive rod than vice versa every time. The fly line is the delivery mechanism for your fly. So you don't want to skimp there. But in the beginning, people should emphasize getting, you know, making all the proper investments. So like if somebody comes to, to me and says, hey, I'm looking at getting into fly fishing, I'm going to start with an inexpensive rod. Um, we're probably going to start somewhere in that $150, $200 range. That's still not cheap. There's a lot of cheaper stuff out there. But at that price point, you're going to get something that performs well, is trustworthy and durable, and probably carries some type of quality warranty. Um, the different manufacturers vary a little bit. Regarding warranty, my suggestion is just take care of your damn rod. Um, I see people abuse these things, beat them up, and... You know, like on our guide staff, it seems like it's the same darn guides breaking their rods all the time and complaining about how they're not durable. Um, I used to break a lot of rods. I don't break very many anymore. I take really good care of them. So case your rod, take good care of it, don't beat it up. Um, but rods should be trustworthy at 150 to $200 for just the fly rod. You're starting to get into that price point of, okay, this is a, a rod that I can I can fish with for a long time because... You have to think about like getting some type of decent packer bag or vest. You need a dedicated, you know, fly fishing bag or tool for your tools, for your flies, all that. You're going to have some capital outlay for flies, probably waders and boots. If you want to fish cold water or, you know, fish the fringe seasons outside of say June, July, August, early September, uh, you're going to, you know, a good set of polarized sunglasses. You got some hemostats, you got some nippers, you got some tippet, that kind of stuff. So as people get into this, you got to be thinking about making a lot of other investments outside just the the rod and the rod and reel system. So, as beginners get into it, you need to think about all those other investments. And so, we don't want fly fishing, and it shouldn't be uh, there shouldn't be a big barrier to entry on the fly rod end of it th- end of things. But you definitely have to you, you have to have flies, you have to have float, and you have to have some leader. Don't ignore all that stuff. It is so critical have it and you better have some gas money left over when you're all done with that so as beginners get into it they need to make those considerations um regarding like in selecting you know rod weights and lengths you know here comes the question okay well getting into fishing or you know i'm already into fishing but i'm looking to expand my abilities i want to be and i dream of fishing let's just say small mountain streams this next year that's my number one personal destination that I'm going to fish near my home in central Washington. If I'm on a day off, I'm taking my kids or I'm taking a buddy, uh, maybe that's newer, taking my wife. I'm probably going to get out of my boat and I'm going to go fish small mountain streams and play small ball for small trout. That's, I love it. It's quiet. I get a little exercise hiking. The fish are generally more aggressive and I can catch Lots of fish on dry flies in a very uh, serene environment. So we'll just talk about that first, and then we'll kind of work our way up into larger rods. And I'm primarily going to focus on trout during this discussion as, like, kind of entry-level stuff. Uh, as far as rod weights go, you know, this number five has kind of become the standard. But it's way, when it comes to, see if I can explain this right. The analogy that I've used in the past, like when I explain like why it's good to have the right tool for the job. So if I'm going to fish a stream that is say narrower than a county road or county road sized, I'm going to be needing to make a lot of very short, quick casts. I'm going to cast 
and my fly is going to probably quickly filter over the spot I want to hit, and then I've got to make another cast really quickly after that. So, and I'm going to have to false cast and build line speed to dry my fly because my fly is never going to get drowned. Like a, a nine foot five weight, it's kind of the standard rod that most people start with. It's a miserable beast to cast at 15 to 25 feet. It doesn't load. And what I see is a lot of people that are fishing smaller water and needing to make short casts, they have a very ungratifying casting experience. And the analogy or the euphemism that I use is, imagine trying to play ping pong with a tennis racket. You could do it, and ping pong is a badass little game, right? Like, when things are going good and you got you got a good got to get volley going, it's really fun. It's fast. It's quick-paced. It, it, it's very, very fun to play, right? And very, a, lot of, a lot of good times happen around the ping-pong table. But if you were playing with a tennis racket, it'd be super awkward. It'd be clunky. You'd be whacking the table. You'd be whacking yourself in the head from time to time. And you wouldn't be getting that ping-pong ball back across the table where it's supposed to go at any type of rate of speed. And that's like fishing small streams with a heavy rod. It, it It's slower, it's unsatisfying, it's not as quick, you don't get to actually enjoy a full speed cast or a full speed swing. So for smaller streams like that, anglers really got to consider something in that number two, you know, leave the zero weights and one weights kind of out of it. That's like more of a specialty thing. If you've been in the game a long time, there's certainly a place for those, but Anything from that two to four weight, um, you know, we're talking county road size streams and smaller that is eight and a half feet on down with the most popular rod being like a seven and a half number three. Uh, just an average. It doesn't have to be exactly that length, but that's a really good rod for making short casts at fifth, even 10 feet, 15 to 35 or as long as 40 feet. In situations where you're going to have to hit little paper plate sized pockets behind rocks, and you're going to have to be able to flip your fly up under sticks and brush, and you need a soft action enough rod that you can do some roll casting when you have a minimized back cast, because in- inevitably there's going to be some brush and trees surrounding this creek. It's a riparian area, it's going to be brushed in. So those are considerations for people who are looking to fish smaller water. Uh, in terms of rod length, you know, what rod length ends up doing for you is longer rods give you more reach on larger water. So if you're thinking big western style streams and you're going to dabble in big western style rivers, longer rods give you more reach. They give you a bigger ability to roll cast a long ways or mend, which is any type of manipulation of the line. You know, men can come in a lot of different forms, but that Longer rod can certainly help you reach out there a little bit further and control your your presentation. So nine feet is kind of like the standard for for rods. If you are going to fish large western streams, um, you know, let's just say, you know, as wide as a state highway or larger, a nine footer is a great choice. Uh, really good choice for throwing two fly rigs and indicator nymphing. And then when the rivers get even bigger, uh, and you're doing a lot of tandem rigs, meaning two flies, we start to look at nine and a half and 10 foot rods. The downside of longer rods, and it sounds like it's a great idea, but the downsides of longer rods are the little stuff like feeding line becomes a little trickier. 
They don't throw as tight of a loop, so they're a little bit at a disadvantage in wind. They're less accurate if you're throwing precision casting dry flies. Something like an eight and a half foot rod would be much better than, say, a nine and a half foot rod, with a nine feet being kind of the sweet spot. But longer rods do offer some disadvantage uh, in that sense. Uh, as far as rod weights, when you start to get onto the bigger streams, you know, the nine foot five weight again is kind of the go to, but <clears throat> if people are throwing weighted flies, um, if your goal for, say, this upcoming season is I want to throw large weighted streamers, I want to throw some sink tips, uh, and I want to target some bigger trout on some of my outings. You've kind of been there, done that a little bit. You can catch them on nymphs, you can catch them on dries. That's not really exciting you a whole lot. Uh, then you're probably looking to get into that number six weight range, uh, or you're looking at a nine and a half or a 10 foot five weight if you're going to throw sink tips uh, on larger streams. But the number six winds up being much more of a streamer rod to me uh, than a nymphing rod. A nymphing rod to me still needs to have a relatively soft tip so I can feed line and make little bends and adjustments. Um, anymore, I fish a lot with a 10 and a half foot three weight up to a 10 foot five weight uh, for most of my nymph rigs. Nine foot six weights, nine and a half foot six weights are just frankly, these modern, you know, graphite rods, they're just, they're pretty heavy for keeping a fish on uh, with like a number 16 fly, uh, which should lead me to kind of my next discussion like the pros and cons of weights is the six-way rods uh even five-weight rods don't keep fish hooked up on little flies nearly as well as like number threes and fours um softer rods with a bigger shock absorber tend to keep small flies on uh and the lighter rods tend to protect light tippet a lot better uh which is why i tend to find i nymph fish a lot with 10 foot to 11 foot three-weight rods uh, even a 10 foot two-weight rod <clears throat> because I fish a lot of 5X to 7X tippet on those nymphs anymore, I've just found that light line to be a big advantage, and the lighter rod helps me protect the tippet, whereas I break off a lot of fish when nymph fishing with, like, a number six. So, um, you know, long versus short, those are kind of some of the pros and cons uh, in the single hand of fishing. Um, as far as, like... <clears throat> You know, different brands and things like that. You know, we sell a bunch of different brands. Um, you know, all the rod companies are making good rods. Um, if we sell it at Reds, it means we've already pretty well weeded it out. Um, we, we find brands that we don't like and we carry them for a while. And if we don't get good feedback from the customer and our own staff, you know, we, we don't continue carrying those brands. We've been in business long enough. We've got it pretty well honed uh, at this point. But there's a, there is a big difference between rods uh, that are built overseas and rods that are built um, domestically. And ultimately, you have to buy what you can't afford responsibly. Uh, and overseas built rods, you know, provide an angler a really good option. And our leading overseas brands, um, as far as today that we sell, uh, are the Echo Company and the Reddington Company. And they build they build great rods. Um, they're well built overseas. Uh, they don't have as tight a quality control. Um, they they don't have the craftsmanship that the U.S. built rods don't. It just it's the truth of the matter. If you have if you have a product that you're going to build in the U.S., you're going to charge a premium for it, and it better be a premium level rod. At the end of the day, you know, out of all the different brands that we sell, these things are priced extremely competitively. 
Um, there's only a few real sweet spots, and I'll say that Loomis has found kind of a sweet spot with their IMX Pro rods. Um, so, you know, there's a plug for them. I, I think that that, the, that series of rods at that price point is pretty tough to compete with. And then Sage has a couple of streamer and saltwater rods, the Payload and the Maverick, that are kind of newer that, man, for a U.S. built rod at that price, um, are really great. But generally speaking, things are priced very competitively. You get what you pay for as far as materials and ingredients. Um, you know, I should really touch on that. So the, like the high end, let's just say, let's just wrap Sage, uh, Loomis, uh, Berkheimer and Winston kind of into one group and just say, okay, those are the highest end, uh, us built rods. The materials that those rods are built with, it just, it feels and seems like the rebound that you get out of those rods when you load up, uh, you load, put those line, Put those rods under a load with the tension of the fly line, you know, during cast. It just seems like they rebound so much cleaner, truer, straighter, with more consistency and more energy. Uh, it just, anybody who comes and casts them side by side, it's very, very rare for somebody to prefer an overseas built rod to the high-end domestic built rods. Does that mean everybody needs to go buy, you know, you know, Sage Loom, Mr. Winston, or whatever? No it's probably going to outfish you for a long period of time, but I will say this. So there's, there's in ever, I have lots of rods made both overseas and in the U S um, they're, they're priced right where they need to be. I review lots of entry level price products, man. I've sold more of those echo shadow two Euro rods than probably anybody in the country. It's a great rod. It's 250 bucks. Pretty, it's pretty tough to compete with. Um, but I will say this just, you know, I hear like, haters on youtube or, or blog or whatever occasionally in the store like oh i can't believe somebody pay a thousand dollars for a flyer out oh my god that's just ludicrous and uh you know when you love to do something like you love to fly fish a thousand bucks really you know i'm i come from an extremely blue collar background um and a thousand bucks if you really are into something thousand bucks really isn't that much money. I use bow hunting as an example. I've got a ton of blue collar bow hunting buddies and a lot of them are a lot younger than me and they're in their mid twenties busting their asses at, you know, <laughs> you know, a lot of more here, right? Uh, and it, guys who love bow hunting, for instance, I see it all the time for them to pay 1200 bucks for a bow. Uh, no big deal. Um, it's just, that's what they love to do. And fly fishing it, it seems like we, we, we put all fly rods into kind of one box as though a $300 fly rod does the same thing as a thousand dollar rod. And I assure you it doesn't. And if you want to make an investment, in something that you're going to have literally for the rest of your life, I have fly rods that are 20 years old. Um, I have some of the original sages that I bought that are still great performing rods. The finish held up well, the corks held up well, and they still fish fantastic. Um, so I would just say a thousand bucks really isn't that much when you love to do something. Um, you're not going to start there, but if you were to tell somebody who loves to play music, if you love to play a guitar and you told me you were going to spend a thousand bucks on a guitar, I'd be like, awesome. It's a great guitar, right? Like you love, that's what you love to do. Same for playing a violin or skiing or what snowboarding or whatever it is. Like a nice fly rod's a nice fly rod. It's a precision instrument designed to perform. And if you love to fish, it's not, 
the end, it's not the end of the world. Um, I see people driving $50,000 trucks bitching about the price of fly rod. And I'm like, well, you just don't love fly fishing that much. So I'm thinking in my mind. So don't be afraid to at least kick tires on some of those higher end rods. Cause I don't think you'd regret it. Um, but the overseas built stuff just does not have the quality control. We do see a higher, you know, higher frequency of breakage with overseas built rods. Um, and it, it just don't, they don't seem to hold up, you know, even the resins and things that they put into these, there is cost associated with all that. The U S built stuff, they just make investments in the right ingredients for the job. And you're employing somebody that built that rod for you that put their heart into it. Um, so I would just, I would, that would encourage you to at least kick tires on that. Um, as far as, uh, specialty rods go, there are rods built specifically, um, for different applications. Um, if you're looking for a streamer fishing rod that it's going to cast a large weighted fly in a sink tip, there are rods that do a better job of that than other rods that are designed to, to bend and load up down into the butt section and let that heavy, strong portion of the rod work for you to catapult that heavier load with minimal effort. And, you know, currently some of those rods are like a Winston Alpha Plus. Sage Payload's a great choice. Um, I won't really talk about saltwater rods. The IMX Pro uh, is one of those. And there's a Reddington Predator rod uh, that does a nice job of that as well. And I'm probably leaving a few out. But there are rods designed to specifically do that. If you're going to European style nymphish, you need to have an ultralight rod that's a minimum of 10 feet long in order to be to, you, you can outfish, <laughs> you can outfish a rod that's not built for the, the job you're asking it to do very quickly. <laughs> it's pretty tough to fish out, fish the quality. But if you're thinking about European style nymph fishing, just, I would forget about it. I would indicator fish or dry drop or do something else until you make the investment in the right rod. And you should be starting with a minimum, you know, 10 feet on the length and a maximum of a three weight on the rod weight. So, uh, in these specialty rods, in order to be effective, you definitely need to have, uh, the right, you know, the right tool in your hands in order to, to be effective. Um, if you're going to throw a lot of, a lot of nymphs, uh, with a strike indicator, you know, I would really be thinking about a nine and a half or a 10 foot rod. Um, there's some rod makes out there. You can get 10 foot four weights. Um, a lot of the European style nymphing rods, like the 10 foot four weight, your Euro rods, to me, those really aren't check or tight line nymphing rods. Those are like indicator rods to me. Maybe with the option of doing a little bit of check nymphing, but there is some great light line indicator rods out there. Um, look for stuff in the nine and a half to 10 foot range. Uh, no more than five weight. Um, I think at number six weights, it's just too tough to feed line without disrupting your bugs. <clears throat> and as mentioned before, it's too tough to keep fish hooked up with small flies on heavier rods. Um, so there, there are specialty rods out there. Um, if you throw a lot of dry flies and droppers, um, I'd be thinking about a minimum of a nine foot rod, um, that keeps the loop open, allows you to cast tandem rigs a lot better. Pretty tough to do on those shorter rods. Um, and then, so we'll talk about space stuff here in a minute as well, but as far as, uh, saltwater versus freshwater goes, saltwater fly fishing is becoming just increasingly popular international travels easier than it's ever been. Uh, just customs, everything's fast, you know, booking flights is a snap, you know, the prices of some of these international trips that we do are just very, very attractive where, 
you know, for a little over three grand, you can get seven nights and six days at a lodge. Um, and, uh, they, you know, the cost of living and some of the overhead these lodges have just isn't what it is in the United States. So we can go to, you know, Mexico or Christmas Island. Um, and some of the other trips are more expensive, but those are two that we do really well. Um, we've done them for a long time and, you know, saltwater travel is just getting, it's getting a lot easier. And so anglers are being in the invest. And one of the big questions is like, what makes a saltwater rod a saltwater rod? Um, I won't get into, you know, the construction analysis of the two types of materials and all that garbage. You can go read it on the website. The manufacturers are happy to give you eight pages uh, of bullshit on what makes their rod better. But here's the truth, like saltwater versus freshwater. Saltwater rods are meant to be tough. They're meant to be durable when fighting a fish around the boat. Uh, they're tough because you're going to often cast very heavy lines and weighted flies. Um, saltwater rods can't, uh, can't, they, if you, the impact of the fly on the blank of the rod near the tip is a very common way to break a freshwater or a light taper rod. Saltwater rods have to be able to absorb that impact. So, Generally, they have thicker walls, um, heavier resins. They're built to be more durable. Uh, they generally cast uh, out of the butt of the rod a little bit more. Um, and they're meant to pick up a lot. We, we just call it pickup, but they're meant to have a lot of pickup, meaning if I'm throwing at a tarpon or permit or whatever the heck I'm throwing at, I need to be able to pick it and I'm going to miss. You know, a lot of times I'm going to have to recast. And I'm going to have to really smoothly pick up 40 feet of line out of the water with a weighted fly, aerialize that into my back cast, and then lay that cast back down close to the fish. So they're designed to have to to be able to have the capacity to do a lot of pickup, uh, and then cast you know heavy flies into the wind. Uh, distance isn't really saltwater rods really don't seem to cast much further then just say, say if I took like a, a nine foot, eight weight Sage <clears throat> X and I, <clears throat> excuse me, and I cast it against like the comparable, you know, a Winston Air Salt or whatever it is. The freshwater rod generally will cast for distance as well. But what it won't do is it won't punch it out there in two shots. It doesn't take the punch as hard as the saltwater rod. Saltwater rods are like, Boom, one false cast, two false cast, lay it down, and, and we're fishing, right? Uh, so that's what a freshwater rod won't do that a saltwater rod will do. Uh, what a saltwater rod won't do, and I've seen this time and again, is you know, guys want to bring their saltwater rods, they want to take them steelhead fishing, but saltwater rods, they do not roll cast, uh, they do not mend, uh, and they do not throw a short in 20 foot cast very well nor accurately. So, uh, those are some of the pros and cons. If you're looking at rods, as far as bonefish goes, you can use a freshwater eight weight for bonefish quite effectively. As soon as we start talking about mangrove critters like baby tarpon, snook, <clears throat> or permit, um, out, you know, permit aren't mangrove critter, but out in flats, they generally are a larger fly or require larger fly. Bigger fish, um, generally more challenging, you know, casting. Uh, we're, we should really be looking at tapers or rods that are built specifically uh, with that purpose in mind. As far as rod weights go for saltwater uh, fishing, 
bonefish um, a seven weight uh, is a great bonefish rod if you're going to be bonefish specific. Uh, eights are generally what I carry, although I did just order a new seven uh, seven weight Sage Maverick uh, to give that a try. But eights are very common uh, for bonefish. They handle bonefish really great. Uh, when we start to get into like baby tarpon, snook, permit, we're looking at nines and tens typically. Uh, Jack Creval, 10 weight, uh, handles those fine. Roosterfish Dorado, uh, a stout 10 uh, is good for Roosterfish Dorado. When we start to get up into like Florida Keys tarpon, uh, we're looking like 11 weights, 12 weights. Uh, I like a 12 weight for my you know, rooster fish rod. Uh, I don't like to let them get away. And then I'm throwing a 12 weight, uh, for giant trevally as well. Once we get into blue water, sailfish, marlin, tuna, uh, you know, big, big nasty stuff, wahoo, um, that are out in the big water, really looking at a 14 weight. Um, and then like the only kind of tweeners like Costa Rica tarpon, you're really looking like a 13, 14 weight, you tw- maybe a 12 weight with a fighting, you know, an upper handle, uh, or 13 weight. Not a lot of companies make 13 weight, but Costa Rica tarpon, uh, is one where you might be a tweener there, but, uh, hopefully that's helpful on the saltwater end of things. I don't want to spend too much time there, but at least want to kind of, you know, give you an overview of what you should be fishing, uh, for that stuff. Uh, let's roll into two handed fishing and I'm going to try to keep this short, but, uh, let's kind of lay out two-handed rods for you. So we'll break this into like three categories. Um, we'll start, um, we'll start large to small. Okay. So the first term is, is just, we'll say two-handed, um, or spay. Some people say two-handed rods. Some people say spay rods. We just kind of use the terms interchangeably. Uh, but there really is, you know, two-handed rods, um, can be spay cast, but they in some situations, they can be overhead cast, making them a two-handed rod, not a spay rod, if we want to get into semantics here. Uh, but we'll just talk the term full spay. Full spay are generally rods, we'll just say 12 and a half feet to 18 feet, if you want them to be that long, that's pretty uncommon. Uh, but full spay is a term for, for anglers that are fishing uh, Atlantic salmon, Pacific salmon, and steelhead. Uh, very rare to fish very many other species of full spay. Uh, generally rod weights are six weights to, to 10 weights. Um, most light steelhead applications are going to be fished with six and seven. Those are going to be like Pacific Northwest summer steelhead. Uh, they use those in the Great Lakes, you know, region as well, but switch rods, we'll talk about in a minute, tend to be more popular in that Great Lakes region. Uh, People fishing for Atlantic salmon, uh, generally like 13 and a half, 14 foot rods. They cast a lot of Scandinavian style shooting heads, uh, which are, you know, more easier to cast on rods. They're a little bit longer. Uh, Skagit style casting is fine to do with rods, 12 and a half to 13 and a half feet. Scandi lines and traditional spay heads really should be thrown on longer rods. Uh, the most common uh, full spay, I'd say is probably a 13 foot seven weight, um, anywhere from a 12 and a half to 13 and a half foot six or seven, uh, depending on your situation, but those are very common. I could throw a 13 foot seven weight or a 13 foot six weight the rest of my life, um, for steelhead and be pretty content most everywhere I go. Once we start to tango with British Columbia steelhead, um, or Skagit river steelhead or steelhead on the Olympic peninsula, 
you're looking at sevens to nine weights. Um, Skeena, the Skeena system uh, that we do a tri- couple of trips there every fall. Uh, we really like, you know, 13 and a half foot eight weights are pretty common for that Skeena trip. It's just big water in those 13 and a half foot eights. They handle the big cast. They handle the big fish. Uh, but British Columbia steelhead, we're going a little bit heavier than, say, lower 48 steelhead. If you're going to the Deschutes, for instance, 13 foot six weights, great. <clears throat> 13 foot seven weights, great for that. Uh, but full spay is generally you're targeting, you know, Pacific salmon, Atlantic salmon, steelhead, but full spay gear. Switch rods, um, you know, at their advent, you know, back, you know, I just say kind of the early to mid 2000s, switch rods started to get gain in popularity. And they really started out as a rod that, you know, was meant to be cast when it was convenient, you know, single hand. And then uh, if you want to spay cast them, maybe you would switch lines or spools and then you could spay cast them. And uh, that was a great way to transition into two-handed casting for me. And it made a lot of sense at the time. Uh, people really aren't, in the term switch cast is, I guess there's probably <clears throat> some misunderstanding about how that term is used. And one interpretation is that you can switch from a one-handed cast to a two-handed cast. But a switch cast is technically a type of spay cast is a switch cast, like a like a switch that you could whip, you know. So um, switch rods really anymore really designed to be cast uh, with two hands. There are a few companies like Berkheimer, uh, and there's uh, we don't sell them. There's Beulah uh, makes a, a true switch rod, like 10 and a half feet, 10 foot 4 inch. But Berkheimer, we sell some of those, and they really are a, an effective tool for a steelheader on small water to use a true conventional switch rod. Most switch rods, once they get to 11 feet, 11 and a half feet, we even sell switch rods that are 11 foot 9 inch. Uh, once they get that long, they are a bugger to cast single-handed. They are not pleasant to cast single-handed. That's a lot of rod to throw back and forth. It's pretty hard on your elbow after a while. Um, so modern switch rods, really we're expecting to cast those with two hands. Um, lines have changed a lot, and, you know, Folks' ability to to be able to single hand spay cast with like a nine and a half or a ten feet rod has improved exponentially. So I think that the advent of better lines have given people more options uh, with a ten foot nine and a half or ten foot rod. So those are switch rods. Switch rods coming anywhere from a you know let's just say a three weight or a two weight, which kind of falls into the trout spay category. But you know, some manufacturers or people call them switch rods. Switch rods are basically just scaled down. Spay rods, when I talk about switch rods, I'm generally talking anything from a five weight to a nine weight, and I'm really thinking steelhead and Pacific salmon work um, when I'm using the term switch rod. I'm probably, I'm not really talking about light tackle spay or, you know, as we call it, trout spay. So those are switch rods. Best to cast those with short, short skagit heads are the most common for those. Some anglers will want a Scandinavian-style cast those, but they're kind of a short rod for most traditional Scandinavian-style heads. And so you um, you wind up, most 90% of them wind up with a Skagit head of some sort uh, on those switch rods. Uh, there's a lot of good options out there. I, I don't want to deep dive into lines. That's, a whole, like I said, a whole different chapter. Um, but switch rods are very useful. Steelhead and Pacific salmon, especially on smaller water, say, state highway-sized rivers. The switch rods are great. Uh, And depending on the angler's casting ability and the head head that you have on there, uh, 
switch rods, you can rear back and you can get some coverage with those. The downside of casting big with shorter rods is generally, you know, Skagit heads are shorter than Scandi heads. You're going to have more line stripping back up at the end of the swing. Uh, and you're going to have a lot more running line to manage, which is a little bit more challenging and tedious. Um, so when I think about switch rods, I really don't think about big coverage, but they will they will cast an awful long ways. Um, you're really not at a great disadvantage distance-wise by using an 11-foot rod versus a 13.5-foot rod. With a 13.5-foot rod, gains you is just efficiency uh, and ease and less fatigue. And uh, frankly, just an observation folks fishing the right rod for the job. If you need to cast 80 or 90 feet in a particular river, have a bigger rod. You're going to get a better turnover and a better presentation. So I'll kind of drop switch rods at that and just say they're not for everywhere, um, but they will they will fire it across the river. But I want you to think about more like that 30 to 60 foot effective fishing range with, you know, shorter rods. All right, so finally, let's dabble in, uh, in trout spay. Um, trout spay is kind of like the last oh, seven or eight years, um, you know, casting two-handed rods, ultralight two-handed rods. I started um, with a five-weight, you know, Sage One uh, quite a few years ago. Loved it, kind of helped start the trout spay revolution. And uh, today we're fishing a lot of, say, number three and four-weight light tackle trout spay rods. Really fun way to uh, to catch trout. Peaceful and enjoyable way to cast, low stress, you got no back cast, you don't snag your back cast in the tree, a lot of control. It makes throwing, uh, you know, 40 to 50 foot cast a snap. I mean, I can cover water like, I mean, there's just no fall, there's no false cast. So I can fire that, you know, fire that sink tip and a streamer back out to the run and keep stepping down at a high rate of speed. So very effective. Um, as far as trout spay goes, um, I'll just talk rod weights. Most trout spays, if they call it a four-weight, it kind of plays like a six-weight single-hander. <clears throat> so, like, I fish a Winston four-weight two-hander a lot. It happens to be my favorite trout spay rod. And as far as just pure strength and lifting capacity, think of it like a six-weight single-hander as far as its its ability to handle, say, a 20 to 24-inch fish. Um, I've got no, no qualms about landing fish in the 20 to 24-inch range uh, on my Winston four weight no issue at all <clears throat> so your three weight trout spay then is going to kind of act comparably like a five and two like a four uh two weight trout spays um they're kind of cute little guys um what they won't do is make casting large flies enjoyable so cross that off your list if you want to throw big nasties for big trout um three weights will do a little better job of that they're very common for guys who want to throw like traditional bugger patterns or sparse flies in that number eight range. If you're throwing number sixes, fours, and you want to throw some big stuff, man, look at look at number four rods, number four trout space, and uh, look at OPST's family of heads. You know, there's other stuff we sell other stuff, but the OPST stuff. You know, as far as customer satisfaction, my own endorsement, <clears throat> the OPST kit. Between the laser line, that commando head, you know, that modular head system so that you can switch out heads if you so desire, uh, really is the most common. Uh, like I said, try not to talk about lines, but there's some integrated line options too. But be thinking about Skagit heads in that 12 to 15 foot head range with the 10 foot sink tip on top of it, and you'll be able to handle big flies. Uh, lastly, we'll kind of cut trout spay off at the number five. 
Um, if you're throwing very large flies, you know, Montana River Browns, uh, if you're fishing anywhere in the Rockies for large, you know, large brown trout, which <clears throat> tend to favor larger streamers, <coughs> be thinking about that number five. And I would really consider like an 11 and a half foot rod. Um, just makes lifting that sink tip and that big fly up a lot easier. So that's concludes my podcast. I want to just give you just a wide synopsis on choosing fly rods, pros and cons of different kinds. Um, feel free to comment, um, or just, uh, you know, message, you know, message the shop. We have an instant chat on our website. Uh, that's really good. I mean, our whole team is on that and I, I challenge any shop in the country to have the shared knowledge that our team does. Uh, so hit us on chat, just go to redsflyfishing.com, hit chat, ask any of the guys questions. We're very good at it and, uh, we'd love to help you out and, uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, we'll see you on the next one.